Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke, with him, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thanks, Seth. What we've been doing this spring is we've been looking together at the questions that Jesus asks. If you read through the Gospels, he's uh, regularly asking people questions. And the question we're going to look at uh, this morning, I think, is particularly um, poignant for us and timely for us for this uh, moment in the, in the life of um, our city. The question we're going to look at is this question where he says, why are you so afraid? You see that in uh, verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Which assumes that you are, and I think that's a fair assumption because we are, um, the amount of fears that all of us have brought into this room this morning are endless. Uh, We are afraid of rejection. We have the fear of not being enough or not having enough. We are afraid of failure. We're afraid of being known. We're afraid of um, our futures. We're afraid about our finances. We have fear around our children. Um, And the conversation that seems to be happening on everybody, you know, across the board right now in the city is we have fear about safety. There's fears about living in Memphis. There's um, this fear of rising crime. There's fear of crime feeling like it's, it's omnipresent and getting closer and closer and closer. And so uh, it's an important question for us to stop and to try to do business with this morning. And so as we um, consider that question, what I think is fascinating about it is, again, it assumes that we're afraid, but it invites us to pause and to try to get up underneath it. Why is it that we're afraid? What, what is it that's underneath our fear? And so I want to um, take this question on really from three different angles. I want to look at first what fear reveals. Secondly, I want to look at uh, where fear leads. And then thirdly, I want to look at uh, what fear provides for us. So what it reveals to us, what it, uh, where it leads us, and what it provides for us. So first, let's look at um, what fear reveals. And to get at this, uh, the story is, is pretty simple that we're jumping into. Um, Jesus is with his 12 disciples, and we find out in the passage right before this is that he has been preaching all day long full day of nonstop teaching. In fact, you see in verse 35, it says, on that day when evening had come. So it's, it's late. Dude's been talking a long time. And I don't know if you know this, but what I'm doing right now is pretty 
exhausting at a physical, emotional, spiritual level. I come home on Sunday afternoons and am done. And um, to do this nonstop all day, you could imagine he's wiped out. So he says, guys, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. And when they get in the water, they start going to the other side of the lake. Uh, he just crashes, just passes out on one of the cushions on, in the boat. And while they're on the water, look, look at verse 37. It says, okay, this great windstorm arose. Now, the word great in this passage is really significant. You're going to see it pop up a few different times. The word great is, is the Greek word mega. That's actually, that's the word that we translate great, mega. So this is not just a normal little thunderstorm that kind of pops up. This is a mega storm, massive. It's severe. There's hurricane force winds. The, the boat has got to be rising and falling on the waves. The waves are crashing into the boat. Water's getting to the boat. They can't bail out the water fast enough. And they're freaking out. These are trained fishermen, and they've been in storms on the water before, but this is mega. This is, this is next level. And so they're freaking out. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a storm on water, but it's very different from being in a storm on land. You know, I grew up in Texas. I grew up in Dallas. And so I remember when I was in school, they would always walk you through uh, tornado drills. Okay, in the event that a hurricane touches down next to us, the alarm's going to go off. We're going to go out the you know, door single file. We're going to go out in the hallway. We're going to curl up in little balls by the hallway. I vividly remember being curled up in a ball by a, you know, up against the wall. Because when you're on land and there's a storm that comes... There's a, there's a place you can go. There's a, there's a place for protection. There's a place for safety. But when you're, when you're in the open water and a storm comes, it, there, there's nowhere to go. It's just all around you. You are surrounded by a force that is more powerful than you that you can't manage and you have no escape from. It's terrifying. So I have a, I have a friend that says this picture of a storm on the water, the, the this is, a, this is an apt metaphor for what life is like. That life is more of a sea journey than it is a land journey. Meaning, we all know what it's like to have these forces come upon us that we were not expecting, that are more powerful than us, that we can't manage and we can't escape from. So you lose a job or your marriage falls apart, or you can't get pregnant, or you have a miscarriage, or you experience chronic health, or your children experience something that they, that's, that's overwhelming. Uh, you struggle with mental health and, and depression and anxiety, that, that, that you, know, you, you, you run into real financial devastation. All of these forces feel like there's storms at sea. And in those moments, when you're, when you're overwhelmed on the waters like that, your perception about how much control you have in life changes. What you thought you had control over and power over, it, it, it's like it's this illusion that just pops like a soap bubble. And you realize, okay, I, I'm way more out of control than I thought I was. I'm way more helpless than I thought I was. And, and I'm in way more need than I thought I was. That's the reality that these disciples are starting to bump up against. They're coming to terms with the fact, we might die out here. 
and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, that reality has always been true, but they're bumping up against it in a unique way. That's what fear reveals. Fear is this thing inside of you that is telling you, I'm not safe. I am not in control. I am vulnerable. I'm in danger. And I think one of the, this is one of the reasons why I think so many of us, one of the realities that so many of us are bumping up against in Memphis right now, I think for a lot of us, we would have agreed maybe two years ago that there are places in the city that are safe. And I don't know if we can say that anymore. Where it feels like, okay, there really, there's no safe haven any longer. It feels like violence, crime, there's no space that's immune from that. And that's a, a very distressing reality to come to terms with. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that reality? And here's my honest answer. I don't know. I really don't know what we do with that reality. Because on the one hand, of course it is true that there is no place of ultimate safety on this planet. The Bible says we live in a fallen, broken, dangerous world. You can move to the safest city in the world. And of course, tragedy can follow you there. We are not promised safety this side of eternity. That's true. And on the other hand, the news over the past number of months is not encouraging. And people are afraid for legitimate reasons. And there are other places in the world, there are other cities that are generally safer. And so everyone has to wrestle with, what do I do? And I, there's no way I can stand up here and, and, and bind your conscience and say, God is calling you to stay in Memphis. And I can't say God's calling you to leave Memphis. There's this tension I don't know what to do with that we all live in. And the tension goes like this. Comfort and safety is a good thing to desire. That's what heaven is. And there is no place of ultimate safety in this life. And we are responsible to protect ourselves and to protect those around us. This is why we have door locks. This is why we wear safety belts. And... The labor of love always involves risk. I mean, C.S. Lewis said, to love anything is to make yourself vulnerable. And so in the midst of all of that tension, that, that's really hard and that's really scary. But that's, that's what fear reveals. It reveals to us we don't sense that we're in control. We, don't, we sense that we're vulnerable, because we are. So... Um, where does that lead us? Secondly, where, do, where does faith lead us? And so um, faith can lead us to one of two destinations. Not faith, fear. Fear can lead us to one of two destinations. I'm sure faith can as well, but we're talking about fear. Fear can lead us to either point A or to point B. And point A is that fear leads us towards isolation. It leads us to this uh, anxious place where we're more controlling, more demanding. Uh, we eliminate all risks to self-protect. 
it's, it's, we're going deeper into ourselves and it's, we're, we're driving deeper into self-sufficiency. So a form that this can, can look like is you can say, I am desperately afraid of being known because if somebody really knows me, that opens up the possibility of judgment, that they might reject me. They might think I'm abnormal and therefore unlovable. So that is such a scary prospect to me I am not going to make myself known to anybody. I will pretend, I will deflect, I will hide, I will remain shallow and superficial because I am terrified if somebody knows the real me, what what they will think. So I'm gonna keep things safe, self-protective, invulnerable, more controlling, more inward. That's where fear can lead you, point A, but there is a point B. Fear can also lead you towards help. It, it can drive you outside of yourself to, to realize and, and to wake up to your need for God and your need for other people. And so you, you see this uh, intuitively happen with children. With young children, when they wake up in the middle of the night and it's dark and maybe they've had a scary dream and there's monsters in the closet or whatever, and they're freaked out. And so what do they do? They intuitively get up from their bed, and they go into their parents' room. They go into mommy and daddy's room. They know I've got to go get help and protection and safety from somewhere else. That's where fear can lead, to help. And that's what you see happening with the disciples here. If you notice in verse um, 38, they wake Jesus up, and they cry out to him, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, there's not a person in this room has, who has not asked that question or some form of that question. Because if you think about the optics of this story, you just hit pause on the story right now. The optics are not good. Their lives are in danger. They are literally dying. And Jesus, God incarnate, is doing nothing. He's, he's, a, he's literally sleeping on the job. And so they come to him with their anger, with their rage, with their fear, with their terror, with their confusion, their doubt. Do you not care that we're perishing over here? We ask that same question. Do you not care about my happiness? Do you not care about my family's well-being? Do you not care about our city? God, do you not care? Now, anytime I've read this passage before, and, and I've, I've preached on this before, I, I've kind of beaten up on the disciples here because they're, they're, they're so, uh, it feels like they're so uh, faithless. But what I love about this story is how, um, is how raw they are. This, they, they are not being polite Southerners. This is not how polite Southern people address Jesus. But I love that because what they're doing is they are taking all of that mess, that unprocessed rage, anger, doubt, confusion, but what are they doing with it? They're bringing it to Jesus. They, what, what, what is happening in this moment is that the storm has exposed that human self-sufficiency is actually insufficient. We need a greater power beyond ourselves to help us because we really are helpless. We really aren't as in control as we think we are. I mean, this is is, um, the starting place of AA, to admit that you're powerless over your addiction. 
to admit that you can't manage this on your own strength and you need a greater power other than yourself to restore you. And so that's what they do in all of their mess. It's not clean. It's very messy, but they come to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He shows them the kind of power that they have access to. And so he wakes up and it says in verse 39, I I love this. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't turn to them and say, hey, why did y'all wake me up? Or, hey, how dare you question me? He rebukes the wind. He says, shut up to the wind, and the wind stops. Now, if you're in the boat, that could have just been a coincidence. Okay, the wind just stopped, but the waves would have been rocking and turbulent for hours after this. But he looks at the water, and he says, peace, be still. And look at what it says in verse um, 39. It says that there was a great calm, same Greek word, mega. Now it's mega calm, mega storm, mega calm. Waters that were turbulent and life-threatening and dangerous are now glass. People often say that um, God will not give you more than you can handle. God will not give you more than you can manage which is absolutely false. God routinely gives us more than we can handle. And I don't know all the reasons why. I do think one of the reasons why he sometimes allows overwhelming things to take place in our life is because it forces you to go to him for help. If you're anything like me, when... Life is working out well for you and and you're on top of things and you feel like you're in control and you're organized and you're being productive and you're getting it done. I sense very little need for God in my life. And the heat starts getting turned up and so I start to run to some helps. My first instinct is, okay, how can medication help? How can therapy help? How can exercise help? How, you know, maybe there's a podcast I need to listen to. I don't know. We start, I start looking for other helps. But when you really get in over your head and you're at the end of your rope and the bottom falls out, you become like the little child in the dark and scary room and I've got nowhere else to go but to, into his arms. And I think that's sometimes why he allows overwhelming things to happen. I don't know all the reasons why, but I know that that's part of it. That's what's happening in the story so that they would get to the end of themselves and see the kind of power that they actually have access to. That's where fear can lead. But here's here's the last thing we have to look at. What What does fear provide you with, though? What happens? Last thing, what fear provides. It's uh, great calm now, eerily quiet, and into the silence, Jesus says the the million-dollar thing. He asks the the question, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And it's hard to, you know, we don't know what his tone was. When you're you're reading just words on a page, you, you you can't hear tone. And you don't know if he's being harsh, if he's rebuking them. You don't know if he says this with a smile of like, hey, Like, we're good. I got this. Like, why are y'all still afraid? We're Gucci. Like, I'm good. But, you know, in some ways, regardless of what his tone was, the outcome of the story, I think, is the most fascinating. Because if you look, okay, they're now safe. The storm is over. And look at verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. Third time 
mega shows up. Now they are mega afraid. Jesus calms the storm, and rather than that reducing their fear, it heightens it. They're more afraid in the peace and quiet than they were in the raging storm. Now, why is that? Because they realize, maybe for the first time, that they are in the presence of God himself. That's why they say this thing next. Who is this? What are we dealing with here? If this person can control the wind and the waves, then this person is in control of everything. Jesus is in control of every molecule. He's in control of every millisecond of human history. Which means, I think, that they're beginning to realize that their life is still not their own. Which is a very vulnerable place to be in. When you realize, okay, I'm still not in control. He has all the power. I don't. He's in control of everything, not me. He's the only one that can actually calm down chaos and the storms of this world, which means I can't, which I think is, is, a, is a very uh, disorienting and terrifying thought alone. If you realize, okay, Jesus has all the power in this relationship, that's scary. But I think that's important for us to at least swallow and grapple with because I think deep down, we really do believe, okay, we can fix Memphis if we just get the right structures in place, if we just get enough buy-in from churches and organizations and nonprofits and soup kitchens, if, if we just get the right legislation in place, we get the right programs in our prisons, we'll be okay. We'll be safe. If we can just figure out a way to fix poverty and get more police presence and train our police better, and figure out a way to restrict firearm access or whatever it is, then we'll be safe. We can fix it. And it's a delusion because we're not in control. Jesus is the one who's in control. He's the only one who can protect us and bring calm out of chaos. That thought alone is terrifying, which I think is why the disciples' fear uh, doesn't go away. If he's got all the power, he can do anything he wants. He can write the script of my life in a way that I don't want him to write. He can take people away from me that I love. He can allow suffering to happen. He can take my life. So what do we do with that? If he's got all the power and that's a terrifying reality, what do you do with this? In the uh, year 1871, there was this massive fire in Chicago known as the Great Chicago Fire. Virtually um, ruined this one man named Horatio Spafford, which is an amazing name, Horatio Spafford. Uh, but he's, you know, he survived and his family survived, basically lost everything. Two years later, 1873, he has his wife and his four daughters board a ship to go to England so he can stay behind in the States to rebuild his life. On the uh, journey over to England, their ship collides with another ship. Their ship instantly sinks. sinks. All, um, all four of his daughters drown and die. His, his wife survives. 
And she gets rescued, makes it the rest of the way to England, sends back a telegram to basically communicate, I'm the only one who made it. And he packs up his things and gets aboard another ship and goes across the ocean to meet her. And when he gets to the spot in the water where they believe that the accident happened, he writes a song. He writes a, a hymn that we're about to sing together. It's called, It Is Well. The first verse of that song, he says, when sorrows like sea billows roll. You know, sea billows are waves. And you would just imagine, I can imagine him looking out at the just open water as far as the eye can see, wave after wave after wave after wave. And he says, this is what my life is like. Just wave after wave, sorrow after sorrow after sorrow, unceasing loss and anguish. And then he writes this into verse 1. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Meaning, whatever happens, if I experience peace like a peaceful river, or if I experience wave after wave after wave after wave of sorrow, I, can, I have learned to say, it is well with my soul. Now, we hear that and we think, I don't, even, I don't even know how to make sense of that. How can you say that? How did you learn to say that when you've experienced unbelievable devastation and loss? And he tells you in the next verse, in, in, in verse 2, he says this, Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. He interprets his circumstance through the lens of the gospel. He looks at the cross and he says, okay, if God was willing to give up his own son on my behalf, that has to mean that God is for me, that God loves me. And I don't know how to explain all of this tragedy and all of this loss and all of this pain, but I know that he loves me. I at least know that. I don't have answers, but I know what the answer is not. It can't be that he doesn't love me. The, the only way to make sense of the storms in our life, as terrifying as they are, is to interpret them through the lens of the cross. Because what the Christian gospel does is it says to us, God sees us in all of our helplessness and our out-of-controlness and our weakness and our failures and our sin and our sorrows and the storms. And what does he do? He joins us in them. He enters into them with us, not just to be with us, but also to endure the ultimate storm on our behalf. And so Jesus comes and he receives this massive mega storm of ultimate sin, ultimate death, and ultimate judgment from God on the cross. And he perishes in our place. This is why I think the, the, the disciples' question is so ironic in verse 38, because they say, do you not care that we are perishing? And that is such a particular word because what the gospel says is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Same word. Jesus perishes so that we don't ultimately have to. Does God, does Jesus care that we are perishing? Absolutely. That's why he came. 
And if fear has pulled you outside of yourself to start trusting in Christ, what that means is that now you can hold two things together. You can say on the one hand, I am afraid. And you can say, it is well. That's what fear provides you with. It ultimately it provides you with faith, provides you with wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom where you can hold these two realities together. Jesus is in control, which means he is not safe, but he is good, and therefore I can trust him. And so that does not answer all of our questions. That leaves us with mystery. We don't know why God allows certain things to happen, why God allows heart-wrenching, horrible realities into our own lives or into the lives of the life of our city. But when you look at the cross, when you listen to the gospel, what that does is it gives you an unbending confidence that God is for you, that God loves you. And that love doesn't mean he won't allow storms to happen. That love doesn't keep us from the storms. But what that love does mean is that he will be with us in them. And he will lead us through them to himself, which is where we are ultimately safe. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, despite all appearances, the cross tells us that you love us. I pray that you would give our unbelieving and weak hearts the confidence to believe it, to see it, to live in this scary tension of not being in control, of being in a city that is scary at times, of being in a city that you love. I pray that you would give us deeper confidence of knowing how this great story ends that this story, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, it bends towards justice. It bends towards hope and healing and life where there are no more teal tears, where, there are, where there's reconciliation and there's healing and there's no more death and no more violence. I pray that you would give us confidence in how this story ends and help us by your spirit to lean into it, that we might be people who love who are smart, who are wise, who know how to navigate really complex realities that are terrifying. But I pray that you would help us to be people who love, people who take risks, people who trust, and people who say, it is well, because you first said, it is finished. We pray all this in Jesus' name.